the Irish Times Inside Business podcast in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week I'll be discussing the latest on the Aer Lingus pay talks and Ryanair's Q3 results with Barry Halloran of the Irish Times. You'll hear from him in a few minutes. In the second half of the show, Vincent Jennings, the head of the Convenience Stores Newsagents Association, and Kira O'Brien of the Irish Times will debate the merits of cash over card as methods of payment in our economy. But first to aviation and an update on the latest in the pay talks between Aer Lingus and its pilots, who recently rejected an offer of 8.5% from the company over three years. I began by asking Barry Halloran for the latest state of play in the talks. Okay, well, the pilot's argument is that this offer, which is essentially 8.5%, doesn't take inflation into account and doesn't recognise sacrifices that pilots made over the course of COVID when they took effective pay cuts, they say, of of up to 70%, even though the headline rate was cut by 50%. You might remember, obviously, the pilots were grounded. They would have lost out on... They they maintained that they lost out on extra allowances Mm. because, obviously, they weren't flying. And that, you know, that meant that the actual pay cut they endured was was, uh, a deal more than the 50% imposed on their basic Mm. salary. So that's really the crux of their argument. It's 8.5% over three years? It's 8.5% over three years. But that 8.5% takes into account a deal done in 2019 Mm. with Aer Lingus management that essentially gave pilots more flexibility on summertime leave. Now, you can imagine... Obviously, pilots are going to be busier and more in demand during the summer than during the winter months. Aer Lingus agreed to this, but said that it would have to be funded through the the, the pay tribunal process, which is a, a recognised internal company process that's been there for quite a while, and that this would be done in 2020. That didn't happen for reasons we all know about now. And that pay tribunal finally convened in 2023 last year. It awarded pilots a headline increase of 12.25%, but subtracted 3.75% in order to to fund, if you like, the extra summer leave flexibility that Aer Lingus agreed to in 2019. Now, I don't know the precise details and ins and outs of the, the, the summertime leave agreement, but my understanding is that in order to make that happen, Aer Lingus had to hire an extra 47 pilots. So, as you can imagine, that there was an extra cost, if you like, in that for the airline. And the airline's position is, look, we've, we've, we agreed all along that this is how we were going to manage that particular issue. Pilots were awarded a headline 12.25%. That was in line with what everyone else in the, in the airline mm. got and with apparently what everyone else in the airline was happy to accept, or we certainly know that they have accepted it, whether they were happy or not. So essentially, that that's where this boils down. And the right. two sides are going to the WRC, the Workplace Relations Commission, um, which is part of the state industrial relations uh, system. They're going there in middle of February. So what are, they, what are the pilots looking for? Are they looking for the 12 odd percent um, that was originally, that, you know, was put on the table before being discounted or do they want more? They haven't come out and said we, we want a precise figure, but what they are saying is that they need recognition. It needs to be aligned, their, their pay needs to be aligned more with what, um, what competitors are paying 
and that it needs to it needs to recognise the, the the pain they had to take during COVID. And they're also making the argument that if you look at recent public pay sector deals, they also take recent inflation into account. And finally, they're making the point that look, inflation is from 2019 to early 2024 is in the order of 19%, which I'd say is probably a fair assessment, actually. So I suppose, look, what customers are going to be uh, worried about is that this might drag on and it might impact on their summer holidays or summer bookings. Is there any likelihood in in your view of that or or will they simply find a common ground? Look, I mean, I'm doing this job a long time, longer than I care to remember, and most industrial disputes I've written about have um, have been resolved one way or the other. Uh, it's rare enough for them to, to end up uh, on strike. I think that there is a long way to go between now and summer. Mm. Uh, neither the union nor Aer Lingus is in a position to say how long the WRC process will take. And that's fair enough because it's it's never possible to say that when you're going into it. However, the process is designed to try and reach to, to, to reach some form of resolution. I'm certain that there probably will be. And given that it's happening in February if I were booking uh, my Aer Lingus flight to Florida or Italy or wherever it is in, in July, I probably wouldn't be that worried, perfectly frank. Right, you know? OK, fair enough. Now, over at Ryanair, um, they uh, published Q3 results at the beginning of uh, this week and, you know, pretty good results, but they did lower their uh, estimate for full year profits and um, there was a bit more detail as well about these disputes they're having with online travel agents. Yeah, okay, so the headline profits, if you like, that they were looking at uh, for the current financial year, which conveniently ends on the 31st of March, was somewhere between 1.85 billion and 2.05 billion. What they are now saying um, is that is likely to be between 1.85 and 1.95 billion, which, given that they're going to carry 185 million passengers, is around a tenner ahead profit which wouldn't be out of line with historic norms by any means. That's kind of the the space it has tended to be, at least in the sort of decade or so that I've been writing regularly about Ryanair. Um, So that, and Michael O'Leary actually said to analysts on Monday after the results came out that he thought that there might be a little bit of scope for that tenor to go up kind of maybe to 11 or 12 um, possibly over the course of this year as, as airfares rise. Okay. Now, um, what guidance did he give on uh, the direction of travel for airfares? He was on RT Radio this morning saying that it's inevitable that uh, fares out of Dublin are going to rise because there's a cap on the number of passengers and because Dublin Airport has put in a planning application, it'll be a couple of years before that's, uh, that's, that washes through the system and they either do or don't get their permission. So there's no capacity at Dublin to increase the number of flights out of there. So he was saying it's inevitable that airfares are going to have to go up. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Firstly, there's there's a general squeeze and, and there's a squeeze particularly in Europe on airline seats, on like literally the physical number of seats on the physical number of airplanes flying around in the skies. Everybody wants to travel, but aircraft manufacturing is lagging the, the demand slightly and that is creating pinch points, which means that, yes, the usual laws of supply and demand kick in. And I think that something like a, a passenger cap at a big airport like Dublin is inevitably going to mm. exaggerate that in some way. There is certainly no indication that uh, Irish people's rediscovered appetite for travel is abating at any degree. There are figures in, I'm just looking at some stats in from Dublin and, and Cork Airport, and uh, I think 
kind of close to the order of 400,000 people are heading off for, for, of all things, St. Bridget's weekend, which is a new bank holiday weekend, which we've never had before. But, um, you know, helped by Ireland playing France and Marseille, there's a whole bunch of people heading off out of the country. I'm pretty certain that that appetite is, is only going to grow stronger as we head into the summer. Both Ryanair and Aer Lingus have added new routes. There's going to be plenty of appetite for them, from what I can see. Um, so, yeah, I can certainly see uh, mm. planes being very full coming out of Dublin Airport, and I can certainly see anyone flying out of Dublin Airport paying a little bit of a premium because there is literally a limited number of places um, yeah. or a, li- a limit on the number of people who can fly out there. Now, one thing they won't be able to do is uh, go on to booking.com and, and look for a Ryanair flight. Ryanair has been uh, in dispute with uh, that website and others uh, over the past while. Uh, but it it has sorted out the fight with a couple of them. You've been reporting on that this week. Tell us about it. Yeah, I think that's slightly interesting. Uh, Ryanair has recently done a deal with loveholidays.com and uh, on Monday, along shortly after it announced its results, said that it was also doing a deal with kiwi.com. Mm. Um, essentially, what will happen is if you're a kiwi.com or a loveholidays.com customer and you're buying your package holiday, you can buy your flight from Ryanair. But the conditions are, A, that uh, the the online travel agents don't add any charges of their own to Ryanair's own prices, and B, that Ryanair gets the customer details, which I think is kind of a, which I think has always been a, a crucial issue for, for Ryanair. And you probably remember yourself, Kieran, going back in the day when they, they fought bitter mm. battles with uh, bricks and mortar travel agents as well. I think this is a kind of a, a sort of a digital version of that fight, if you like. So... Ryanair and Michael O'Leary thinks that uh, they may do more of these deals um, and he said that he they he told analysts on Monday that look he said we're in talks with sort of eight ten of the the top players in that business uh, one crowd they are not talking to is booking.com with whom they're fighting a court battle in the United States um, Ryanair is accused of screen scraping adding charges and um, effectively sort of um, giving it incorrect or wrong customer information. And I, my, uh, the last sort of, con- you know, the last contemporary report that I saw of those proceedings, Booking.com was preparing to lodge counterclaims of its own. And uh, O'Leary said on Monday, well, we're not minded to settle with them. So it, it certainly looks like you won't be getting uh, Ryanair flights on Booking.com, yeah. but you will probably be able to get them through several other online agents and obviously via the the airline's own website. website you know? Now, there was an interesting story last week about Ryanair. It emerged that it's been buying up some housing units in Swords in North uh, County Dublin. And Michael O'Leary has said that they have 40 of these uh, units. They're buying them up for mm. staff, for cab- cabin crew who are among the, the lower paid at the airline. Uh, what, what's behind that, Barry? Well, essentially, it's it's the same thing that's... Uh, Ryanair is afflicted by the same problem as everyone else. There, there aren't enough homes for people in this country. So what it's been doing, and it, it kind of... They, they certainly indicated that they were looking at doing this last year. What, it, what it's been doing is it's been buying, effectively bulk buying, uh, new homes in new housing estates up around mm. Swords which is close to Dublin Airport and sort of you're talking a couple of kilometres a bus stop away that sort of that sort of distance uh, what it's going to do is it's going to rent these at discount prices to cabin crew in their first year over their fir- their first year of service with the airline which you know they'll be coming in at the most junior level they, pro- they won't be earning uh, a king's ransom by yeah. any stretch of the imagination and for people like that accommodation is an issue and I think um, you know Michael O'Leary's kind of 
indicated before that, you know, people were being forced to live out at, at a very far distance from... City West, he was talking yeah, about, which well, is on the far side of the of the city. It is, yeah, and I mean, there 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 are no actual direct bus links um, mm. from City West to the airport. Oddly enough, um, so this y- you can imagine the difficulties. I mean, I like I've gotten off flights at, in the sort of we sp- sort of one o'clock in the morning type thing, and I've gotten the the forty four or whatever bus it is out of the airport and. I found myself surrounded by Ryanair cabin crew, so you you can imagine that there's like there is quite a demand <laughs> from Ryanair cabin crew for places to live mm. in that that sort of sword sanctuary area, um, because it is close to the airport. So I guess it makes sense that the airline is doing this. I mean, it's not they're not saying how much this is costing them, and and the most recent report was that they bought twenty, I think it was twenty five of twenty eight in one in particular a, estate. In one particular estate, it's called Foster's Town. Fosterstown Place or something like that. I mean, in terms of a, mm. of, a, of an airline that's doing billions in revenue and counts its profits in, in billions, the actual cost of these homes is not massively material. And I assume they go on to the, they sit on the, the balance sheet as a, as a tangible asset then, you know. So it, it's not terribly surprising given the resources they have that they've decided to do this, given the, the pressures that are in the housing market generally. Yeah, and I guess over time they'll probably pay for themselves even if they are discounted. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I okay. would have thought. All right, Barry Allen, thank you for joining us. We're going to take a short break now. When I return, I'll be talking about the merits of cash over card payments with Kira O'Brien of the Irish Times and Vincent Jennings, Chief Executive of the Convenience Stores and News Agents Association. Back in a few moments. How can harnessing the power of AI help drive your business? At EY, we combine leading business expertise with cutting-edge technology and capabilities. Working directly with you to plan your strategy, we will accelerate your AI-enabled transformation. To learn more, visit ey.ai forward slash IE. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Now for the second part of this episode. Now, the position of cash in the economy has been a theme over the past uh, couple of weeks uh, with the access to cash and the prevalence of ATMs around the country uh, being on the agenda. And uh, the Minister for Finance, Michael McGrath, coming out and saying that he feels that cash still has an important role to play in the economy. But in parallel with that, we also have a national payment strategy, which is being drafted at the moment. And these are important issues for certainly for retailers and Vincent Jennings. Chief Executive Officer of the Convenience Stores and News Agents Association joins me on the panel to talk about that and uh, we'll uh, talk to him about how his members are feeling about uh, handling cash and what place it should have in our society. Uh, but also I'm joined by Kira O'Brien of the Irish Times who is going to argue that cashless is good. Not entirely, uh, cash still has a role, but uh, for the majority of purposes, uh, she feels that going cashless is a good thing. But let's start with Vincent. Uh, welcome to Inside Business, uh, Vincent. Just tell us, uh, first of all, maybe if you can, what what role does cash still play in terms of your members' uh, turnover every year? How much of the transactions are still in cash? Thanks, Kieran. Well, I mean, it depends upon the range of goods that are sold. Mm. But typically, you would be talking about no less than 30% of your sales uh, are in cash. Um, and 30% of your turnover is in cash. Uh, it would be slightly less in such things as petrol stations. But by now, cash is still an incredibly important element. And, and, and people use it yeah. both coin and note uh, in, 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 in degrees. And 
large degrees and long may it last. Okay, so not quite king, but still still important. Now, how would that compare with, let's say, pre-COVID? Let's say 2019, would, would the percentage have been a lot different? Well, it would have been different. I mean, there has been, uh, on an annual basis, there has been a chipping away on, 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 on cash. Um, and the advent of plastic and the, 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 the ubiquitous nature of, 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 of plastic, plus people having been uh, being paid in the, into their banks by credit transfers and the like, that makes a big difference when mm. they don't, you know, they, they have to go to a bank then to get out their cash or sure. to an ATM or cash back or whatever. Okay. Um, what's the position, the legal position in, in relation to cash and uh, retailers? Do they have to accept it? And if they don't accept it, do they have to inform uh, customers? What's the yeah yeah? The, the, there's no legal requirement whatsoever that they have to, re- to to have to accept cash once they put up a notice. Once the person is made aware prior to the purchasing of the pro- of mm. the product or in a place that they should have seen it, that they don't have to. So you know, if a coffee shop puts up and says no cash or uh, um, um, plastic only or whatever, uh, that's perfectly legitimate as long as they have a sign up. Okay. We have none of none of our members. Have that sign up. Well, I was going to ask you, how many members have you got? 1,500. 1,500. How many retailers across the country do you reckon? Any idea? Of retailers in our industry, about 4,200. Right. Okay. So you're just, you're, you're less than half anyway. But none of your members would be cashless. They would all accept cash. Yes. I think that it would be a very silly person who would turn money away. Right. Okay. Um, so what do you make then of, uh, let's say, the debate we've had around ATMs over the last uh, week or so? And also, where do, you, where do your members stand on the national payments strategy, which is in train at the moment? The government is, is out of consultation on that. Yeah, I mean, we were very concerned when, with, with the growth of um, non-bank ownership of the ATM uh, regime. We were very concerned because it had no oversight, zero oversight from the central bank, and that that isn't uh, healthy. We found so these are the ATM machines outside of bank branches, essentially. Yes, yeah, I mean, which you might mean, find your local supermarket. Back in, in twenty fifteen, uh, they were one hundred percent controlled by the by the pillar banks, and now seventy five percent of all ATMs are actually controlled from outside non banking sources. So that's and, and with no oversight whatsoever. So that's a recipe for disaster if if things go wrong. The, there was nobody regulating. The central bank weren't regulating it. Department of Finance weren't regulating. So we brought it to the attention of the Department of Finance because we had, we had noticed there were slow settlements. There were a lot of problems, um, and so they. We are today with the access to cash bill. Similarly, with the cash in transit, they need to be regulated and they are now going to be. And we'll have to commend the, the department for, for, for that action. Right. And in terms of, I mean, a lot of your members probably have ATMs on site. It's a service to customers, obviously. Um, do they make money out of it? It depends upon the, the actual ATM machine of the provider. Some of them are service only. Some of them, want, depending upon the nature and how many transactions you're doing, you can make money. But conversely, you can also ha- it can also cost you if you don't make the transaction. So people make a calculated gamble. Um, and, and also, don't forget, we are providing what we would consider to be a social service. The banks walked away from a lot of the, 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 their, um, their, their uh, branches. Uh, they closed their branches. They took away their ATMs. And those ATMs that remain there, quite frequently, as you know, were the subject of um, HIMAX and stuff like that, trying to open them up in the middle of the night. So, you know, I mean, branches don't have them any longer in places where the branches are closed. So we fill the gap. Right. OK. Kira O'Brien, in broad terms, you're in favour of a cashless society. 
I am for a couple of reasons. Uh, it's more convenient for me. Again, this mm. is personal experience for me. Um, and it's more secure because if, if if we're going one or the other, if we're told you have to use cash, obviously that's not the situation, but if you're told it's cash or digital, uh, imagine taking out enough money to do your weekly expenses. Like It actually makes me feel slightly anxious having that much cash that could potentially be lost or stolen. If my phone, because I would do the majority of my my payments would be on my digital wallet. So through Apple Pay or Google Pay, wouldn't even be with a card these days. If I lose my phone, I can very easily freeze and cancel cards and stop access to that. If I lose a bundle of cash, that's it, it's gone. And it has happened in the past where I have lost cash and I still feel a bit bitter about it. But, you know, for a lot of people, going cashless is more convenient. And one thing that COVID did um, was stamp out a lot of smaller retailers imposing a minimum spend on cards. So you walk into your local convenience shop, I won't name names, but you'd walk into a convenience shop and there would be a sign saying minimum spend of 20 euro or 10 euro to actually use a card. Now, you know, with the whole tap to pay thing, the contactless payments thing, that, that was supposed to be gone. For some places it wasn't. Uh, and that would st- deter people from using cards and it, because obviously there is a, a charge to the retailer for, for the cards, but it meant then you would have to use cash in that particular shop. And in some cases I've walked out because, you know, there's, I was told by people in within the kind of the payments industry that actually retailers can't do that. They have to honour all cards and they can't impose a minimum payment for it. But try having that conversation on a Sunday morning, mm. you know, with your local retailer. So, you know, f- for me, I, cashless works because I can't remember the last time I've carried cash. I have an emergency tenor stashed somewhere in my wallet, but it's been there so long, I think at this point, still got dust on it. Like my my um, school collections for my child, they're all done through Revolut, uh, with the exception of one or two parents who haven't quite signed up to that yet. Um, and we facilitate those obviously with cash payments and then they end up in a Revolut account somewhere anyway. Uh, with our window cleaner, he takes Revolut. So these would have been the things that I would have had to use cash for before, but that's slowly being phased out. Now, what I will say is obviously that is not going to suit everybody. It's not going to suit all retailers. I used to work in retail. I used to work in a cash office. Cash is, to me, cash is just filthy. And, you know, pre, pre-COVID, I was a frequent hand washer for that reason alone. You, you see people pull cash out of... Uh, it's. Mm, it, it, I don't think yeah. we need to go there. Let's not get into it, but mm. yeah, it's, it's not pleasant. So for me... Cash is more convenient. Uh, it's more secure. And when you're using stuff like Google Pay and Apple Pay, it means your card number is never even passing from you to a retailer. So if something happens, you know, if, if something is hacked, you know, the, the risk to you as a consumer is much, much smaller when you're using these mobile wallets. Um, and obviously then, you know, somebody can obviously lift your phone or whatever, but you can then go and very easily cancel all of that. It's much easier to get your money back um, or, or to stop somebody from taking your money then when if somebody just takes your wallet you know they, they, they take the cash it's gone uh, what I will say though uh, when it comes to fraud and stuff like that is that if banks and banks are pushing us towards a more cashless society if banks want us to use cashless methods of payments and if they want to get people out of the, the branches and not be walking in with you know bundles of notes to deposit then they have to take on the, the I suppose the risk that comes with that and where there have been instances of fraud that are of you know, not the consumer's fault, then they have to, I suppose, they have to, mm. uh, to to take on that risk and they have to reimburse people and not have this thing of, oh, well, you must have done something when the consumer can quite clearly prove that they didn't because I've heard of that happening as well, you know, where banks have refused to to reimburse consumers for fraud because, you know, that they accidentally authorised a, a push payment because, you know, it, it all of these things are getting so sophisticated, all these yeah. scams are getting so sophisticated. So, 
that needs to be, that's separate to this debate. But like, if we are going to move towards a cashless society, the banks have to take on that share of risk as well. I, I suppose, Vincent, if cash disappeared, the black market economy um, would probably go with it, or to a large degree anyway, because there's a lot of tradespeople, you know, cleaners and so forth, people doing casual work in houses who will only deal in cash. And whether that ever gets declared to the revenue or not is a matter of uh, who knows. Uh, so if you do away with cash, and if we went to a cashless society, and it's, it's years off, clearly. But if we did, we'd probably do away with the black market economy, yeah, which I, is I, I, yeah, giving a lot of tax behind. There's a lot of words here, like you've been asking, you know, cashless society. Let's mm. let's say that what we're working towards is a less cash society, mm. not a cashless society. I think it's important. I mean, and you Kira's, don't think we'll ever be cashless? I think that it's going to be an awful long time before. I mean, the European Union has clearly said that there is not only a place for cash, but it needs to be defended and it needs to be protected and it needs to be made available. And laws must be put in place to ensure mm. its availability. So, I mean, the European Union is, 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 is seeing that. But I think it's really important to understand. And we've heard from Kira's perspective. But there are other people. There are the marginalised people, people who don't have bank accounts, young people. And I'm not going to even suggest that older people are not tech savvy, but some older people may have difficulties with things other than cash, either traditionally or otherwise. And, and I know that there are security banks, but there are difficulties relating to plastic and to others. When you go into a store and for one reason or another, there's a power outage and there's no way of, of, of making a payment other than cash. That's a problem, particularly if the product has been consumed or if it's a petrol station that the product is already inside in the car. That's a difficulty. So there has to be understandings for, for things like that. We have to... We, I, I, I can well understand going to a less cash society. I cannot contemplate a totally cashless society. I cannot. For your members, which, uh, which is better for them in, in terms of their bottom line, cash or credit? Well, I would have said a couple of years ago, I would have actually said that uh, credit or debit cards were cheaper because we had the Irish ubiquitous laser card. It was unbelievably efficient. It was very inexpensive and it was a great product for both the user and the and the retailer. But in its wisdom, the banks chose to drop it and to go along with Visa and MasterCard. And therein lies the tale. The the debit card situation, I mean, the, the, the versus, debit card versus credit card is now, you know, phenomenally debit card oriented. The costs that are for debit card to retailers are the same as for credit cards, even though it is a completely different function. And to be honest with you, Visa and MasterCard are absolutely coining it um, because they're on a per-click basis and they're making a huge amount so of money. So what's the cost of the retailer, roughly? Well, it, you see, it really does depend what type of, type of the retailer is, but it's a percentage. It can be as much as 4% and it can be as little as a, as a percentile of 1%. It depends what the volume is, what the deal is, the chain, who, who they're okay. dealing with and the like. It's not, it, there's no one-size-fits-all. How does that compare to the cost of cash? Yeah, you got to cash. Then has its own, you know, uniqueness. I mean, as as Kira said, I mean, there are cash offices. There are a number of procedures that have to go through. The real problem is going to the bank, lodging it, having you know the lodgement charges, and this is where it's really important. If society wants retailers and pharmacies and other denominated people to deal with it, they have to to deal in cash or to accept cash. They have to protect us from banks 
finding because you have to take it that they're going to increase their their charges. You know, we have to be protected against the increase of charges because it is, you know, it is a very it's a swinging cost. It can be as much as two euro per hundred for coin and sixty cent per hundred for for for, for notes. When you're dealing with a lot of money, that can be a very, very significant, and particularly in low-margin products, mm. such as lottery products or other products, you know, leap cards and stuff like that, you qu- you can actually... I mean, I know people who've actually lost money on transactions, com- commission-based transactions, when they were Ticketmaster agents and stuff like that, when they were actually paying more for the for the credit card or for the bank charges than the actual commission itself. That doesn't make sense. We're not in business sure. just to provide a social function. We have to make money as well. In terms of the national payment strategy, what are you, what is your organisation saying to the government? We welcome cash We wel- and we will not stand in the way of cash, but we need protections for that. We need to be sure that, that, uh, the, that there are exceptions. So a person who runs a Take, for instance, a 24-hour petrol station. Um, he may choose at a certain time at night for security purposes only to accept uh, uh, plastic. You couldn't have a situation where he would be mandated that he must at all times accept cash. Then also, many of our people would have services around the, around the store, maybe in the back. They might have, uh, you know, washing facilities and stuff like that, uh, both dog washing, car washing and, and, and laundry. And some of those are done by way of voucher or done by card or the like. You couldn't have a situation where somebody would have to retrofit those machines to accept cash. So it, we just have to be understanding. We want to do it. We will do it. But there have to be, has to be understandings of the specifics mm. and the like. All right, Kira, looks as if cash is here to stay. Well, as I said, you know, I'm I'm not for a completely cashless society, but just one point on the younger members of the of society. Both of my kids have uh, Revolut accounts, and they would be quite you know, like they're both under ten. Um, cash for them is a novelty. Like they like to get it, but like it is a novelty when they get it, um, and they think it's you know this this kind of weird oddity. But for the most part, a lot of their 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 uh, their money, birthday money, all that goes straight into Revolut. Well, okay, that's the future, clearly. Um, but anyway, still a place for cash uh, in society, says Vincent and Kira arguing there for a cashless society. Kira O'Brien and Vincent Jennings, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Barry O'Halloran, Kira O'Brien, and Vincent Jennings for joining me on the show. John Casey produced this episode with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor, EY, for its continued support. Remember, as a subscriber to the Irish Times, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on X, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. The Irish Times Inside Business Podcast in association with EY, building a better working world. <laughs>